Hey, it's Connie from Cribs and welcome to this week's podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Now, let's get on to this week's episode. Hey guys, Dominic Nesha here from Cribs. Today we are with celebrity guest Chris Gray. Hey there, how you doing? Mate, thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. I've been watching you for a long, long time, and I met you way back when I worked at Third Eye. I got to see you speak. I watched you at the Excellence Awards, and, and you've been a massive property advocate and actually a source of inspiration for mine, to be honest. Oh, good. Um, I, I really I'm glad like... to see uh, someone listens once yeah, in so, a while. someone does. <laughs> Apart from my mum. Yeah, that's, I use that joke. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's great to have you on the show because you have run a, a very successful business for a long time. And uh, people have probably seen your car out and about there. Your property. But it's cars now. It's yeah. I've got a mixture of weird ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you, got you, worse than the last one. Okay. Yeah. But then, then the um, the limousine that you're running through the desert. Yeah. 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 So I've got the limousine and then um, a 1912 Model T. That's my favourite at the moment. Nice. So crank, crank start, slow and steady wins the race down the side of it. Ah, yeah. Um, you almost die every time you go out in it. It's it's a lethal liability. But yeah. it's amazing fun, not fast. It hasn't got the roof, it's all open. Yeah, yeah. so it's like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and I managed to get the Chitty number plate from, uh, if anyone's from the UK and uh, remembers the uh, the movie when you're a kid. Yeah. But um, it's a liability, it takes about half a K to stop, and uh, in the wet it's even worse. So uh, if you ever see me in the streets, don't walk in front of me. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Just provide a little bit of space. Yeah. Well, Chris, I wanted to talk to you because you have uh, been running in the buyer's advocacy space for a long time. So you're a specialist in, from what I understood, uh, blue chip markets. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that today as well as a number of other topics because you've been doing this a while. Sure. I know that you've shaved the hair off so we can't see a couple of the greys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all gone. Yeah. Um, but but can, you, can you have a chat about this blue chip property? What is it? And um, why is it a good investment strategy? Sure. So my investment strategy is nice and easy. It's straightforward. My whole idea is is go and buy property and then sit on the beach for a year. See if it's grown. If it hasn't, then go back to the beach, wait another year, and then take another look at it. So mine's kind of armchair investing, even though I've learned a lot of stuff. So I've done something like 400 TV shows, like 400 interviews with uh, RP Dardas, CoreLogic, Resident all those kind of people. Uh, so very intelligent people, but I've always come back to the same thing from when I was 22. And that was, if you buy good property in good areas, you get good tenants that have got good jobs, they will always pay the rent and look after the property because they don't want their boss to find out that they've trashed the property uh, because they don't want to risk their job. And that set me in good standing for the last 26 years. So even though I've learned a whole stack of stuff in the last couple of decades, I've still come back to the best things. And so typically in those areas, in GFCs, and we've been through a couple like in the UK and Australia, people aren't forced to sell mm. because generally in a downturn, the uh, interest rates go down. So if anything, they can afford it more. They're owned by 20, 30, 40-year-olds. They've still got good jobs in good areas. They've got wealthy parents. They can still afford it. So no properties go on the market. If there's no supply and there's still demand property prices are stable or they go up and that's one of the biggest things i learned from john edwards the head of residex and he spent probably 40 40 50 years studying capital growth and he said all these drivers in the economy about wage price inflation not keeping up with um, house price inflation there's reasonable reasons around those but the bottom line is supply and demand so i say bondi beach there's no more two-bedroom units 
stacks of people want to live there, they can still afford it and surprises carry on rising. Okay, so can you just elaborate a little further on that? Because um, traditionally, blue chip in my mind, Bondi Beach, eastern suburbs, uh, you know, fringe city. Um, are there more blue chip suburbs coming onto the radar? Or, or do you uh, only stick to Bondi, even though the prices have gotten to a point where, because you, when you started investing, it felt like it was achievable to get to Bondi. Now it's a bit more like, oh. It was still expensive though. So I came from the UK and in 97 mm. and I bought in 99 and my budget was three or 400 grand and I thought I'd buy a three-bedroom house. And it was like, no, it's then a two-bedroom house, then it's four-bedroom unit, then three-bedroom, then a two-bedroom because property prices in Australia were similar to, to the UK. Yeah. So I bought a two-bedroom unit in the southern end of Coogee, overlooking the beach, uh, for 360000 in 99 before the Olympics. And everyone said, you're mad, it's going to crash after the Olympics. 360 grand is a ridiculous amount of money to spend. It's going to crash. Now it's 1112. And so, sure, there are a lot of still good suburbs, but I've stip- still typically kept to the same ones. So the really, really basic philosophy is avoid a CBD because there's no limit of height. You can keep building more and more units mm-hmm. with, the, with the skyscrapers. And most Aussies don't want to live in the CBD. So as soon as you go to that 5 to kind of 10Ks or maybe 15Ks from any CBD, then typically you have three-storey height limits. All of the properties are butt up next to each other, so there's no more space. And so generally you can't increase the supply. Sure, once in a while you can convert a house to a few townhouses or a few units, but generally you can't really increase it. Mm-hmm. Also, the demographic, demographic of people in those areas are young professionals, wealthy parents, professional jobs, big salaries in the city, no liabilities, so they've got massive disposable income. So even though you say like um, Bondi a million bucks is still a lot of money, which is is, especially if you go and speak in Adelaide or in Brisbane or something like that, people so, think you're mad. Um, but... So a million dollar mortgage, four percent interest, forty grand a year, eight hundred bucks a week, two people, four hundred bucks each. They can afford it. And so the parents have got money to give them deposits. Um, they can afford it. We always joke that um, I hope you excuse the joke that they'll only take coke three nights a week if they can't afford it rather than five nights. Yeah, it's okay. not the most politically correct thing, but it's true. Yeah, it is uh, maybe it's 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 coke or a spliff or whatever else. Yeah. but it's the thing is young people have got cash. And they haven't got cars necessarily. They haven't got big debts. And so they've got high disposable income. And whether you believe that's right or wrong from a political or economic perspective, I'm not debating that. That's a fact. People have got money. And so I'd rather invest in the areas where an increase in interest rates or an increase in unemployment doesn't change anything. Okay, so what you're saying there is you're picking markets that really are not dependent upon macroeconomic or macro potential, you know, regulatory shifts or changes or whatever. It doesn't matter what happens in China or America because Bondi's Bondi. People love it. They can afford to pay for it and it's not changing anytime soon. Exactly. So a lot of people say, oh, you must read all the papers. And I say, look, I'm in the media, but I wouldn't listen to any of it. And it's the first thing I've said it on Sky News. I say it all the time mm. as a bit of a joke, but it's true. I only read, I read the Telegraph and I listen to Sunrise more to see what the average Aussie is being fed. Yeah. rather than picking out my news from it. And it doesn't really matter. I say, look at the market once a year, come back a year later and it's fine. Because things don't change in those suburbs. And so, I mean, the downside of those suburbs is it's a high price to get in. It's yep. negative geared. The average Aussie can't afford it. But again, is I'm not saying this is a strategy for the average Aussie. I'm saying if you've got money and you can afford to go for growth and buy around the median price. So we're not buying 50 million or 10 million in Point Piper. 
a million dollars in Sydney is the median price with buying average price property. It's just for the rest of Australia as it's expensive. Interesting. So that means that has your uh, blue chip areas expanded over time? Or no, areas? so it's pretty much the same. So typically we go Eastern Beaches, so Maroubra to Bondi, yeah. uh, within a K of the beach with parking. Uh, Lionel Shore, so Neutral Bay, Kiribilli, Cremorne, Banley, Queenscliff, Fairlight, so kind of uh, a walk to the ferry. And I guess the Kiribilli and, and Neutral Bay hasn't quite got the height limit things, but you can't build that much, uh, no, that high around there. And then, say, the inner west, so like the Leichhardt, Annandale, Balmain type things. And again, there's never any stock. And there's always been a demand. Rental vacancy, I don't care. Because I know for a decent apartment with a decent agent, well looked after with parking in a small block, it's zero. It's going to be rented. Yeah. And you've uh, this is a contentious question in some ways, and it's going to hurt a lot of Aussies out in the market. But um, should you be paying off debt? Or should you be keeping it or increasing it? Sure. So one thing, we'll always have the disclaimer that there's no investment advice and the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also I believe there isn't one right rule. So just because I invest in blue chip property doesn't mean that you need to or the person next to you. I think that with all the speakers around property and probably a lot of the people that you've had on your show, 95% of our mentality is exactly the same in terms of buying properties, paying off debt, all that kind of stuff. And typically, no investors pay off debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but effectively, what we invest in is slightly different. So like before, you said you're more into the brand new. There's pros and cons of that. There's pros and cons to mine. So there's no one right strategy. I agree. Just like the same with debt. So I say generally pay interest only because say on a 500 grand uh, loan, principal and interest, for the same repayment, you could generally have 600 grand interest only. Now, 600 grand property doubles to 1.2 million, 500 grand doubles to a million. In that same period, you're not going to have paid off 200 grand's worth of debt. So I think it's worth going interest only and using the same repayment to buy more property, which then goes up in value, assuming it goes up in value. But if it goes down or you can't sleep at night, fix your interest rates or pay P&I, do whatever you want. Because this is all the dollars and cents stuff. The big picture is, is buy a property, then buy two, but buy three, four, five, six. Whether you're interest only, fixed, whether you're a CBA or NAB or the rest of it, it's all dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. And look, on your first property, it's important. And the compound effect of that is is big. But the reality is, is buying more property, assuming you're buying in a, in a rising market, will make you more money than all of those things put together. Agreed. And, and, and I think you're right. This is a different investment or property philosophies. It depends on your risk appetite. Are you going to be able to sleep at night? How hard do you want to push? My girlfriend's a lot more risk averse than I am, so we have different ideas about how we should invest. And, and most couples do, and, and 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 that's the way it is. And for a lot of people, it's easier to sit on the fence and do nothing than it is to take action. So whatever I've done in my life might not have been perfect. I might not have bought the best properties at the best price or whatever else. But the difference between me and most other people is I did it, and I did it, I think, fourteen times. Mm. And so that's why I make a lot of money. That's why I don't work too hard. Because I just, I'm an action taker and I didn't listen to the hordes, I didn't listen to the media, I didn't listen to my parents or anyone else. I just went and did it. And I've had the roller coaster. I've had times that I've got down to not a lot of money. As you can see, my haircut, I've gone through some stress in my life. But I was willing to take that risk for the extra rewards. Not everyone's built like that. So you don't need to buy 14 properties. You can just buy one or buy two or three. This is is off topic, but I just want to ask you this question quickly. Um, Would you say that... 
there's a service to sort of to acting or to doing more or to not procrastinating. I mean, we obviously people that are geared towards action or doing something are more likely to make more mistakes because because the, the when I'm sitting down with first home buyers and I'm working with investors, it's their first property. They sit there and they want to analyze and read and know everything. And they think that you're going to read and get to this point where you know everything and you're not going to feel scared when you invest. No, you're always you're always going to worry. You're never going to know everything. I don't know everything. No one knows everything, and a lot of the time, the people that know it all, like the Res- John Edwards from Residex, um, he was saying when he kind of a few years from retirement, he's made everyone millions and tens of millions of dollars, and he hasn't taken action himself. And look, he still bought some properties, and I think his later years he bought more property, but he was the one person that had all the information, and. A classic thing we say in our business is our strategy is so simple, it's too simple for most clever people. So a lot of our clients are accountants, lawyers, doctors, wealthy people, super intelligent people, and they're always trying to overanalyze things. They're trying to beat us. They're trying to almost work against us at times. And we just say, go with the flow. And would you buy it, Chris? Well, yes. If it's in the right area, it ticks the boxes, it's on valuation, I buy it. I don't care about the market, I just get in. Mm. And I, I was just writing an article today, um, SQM Research, Louis Christopher has just come out with his boom and bust report. Great buy for anyone, fifty nine ninety five. I don't get, get any money from that. Um, he's predicting growth for next year. And he's saying that very soon we'll be beyond the 2017 peak. So literally people had a two-year time frame to try and beat the market and get in and get out and, and bottom the market. No one got it. And so what's the point? I just buy when I've got the cash to buy, I've got the cash to hold on, and I just go with the wave. And whether I pay 2017 peak or 2018 base, whatever, it doesn't matter. So you're just saying it's, it's time in the market, not timing. Yeah. So for my 360 from that Coogee property to the 1.2 or whatever it's worth now, who cares if it's gone up and down? Who cares if I overpaid for it at the time? Sure, I don't want to overpay, and I'll do everything to get independent valuations and, and checks to make sure I don't overpay, but even if I did 5 or 10%, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. It, it comes around. Okay, this is a, a question that I get asked pretty often and I want to run it past you. And in fact, I've got a client later on this afternoon that's appropriate for. But why um, why is renting your own home better than buying your own home? And and I know that you did this well. I don't know if you still do. Yep. But um, there's a bit of an emotional attachment that people have to get away from. Yeah. Living in that house? So I'm an accountant, so I've got no emotion. And this is why I've got a, uh, I guess, an advantage over most people. Yeah. And again, I was, I was doing another podcast today and talking about emotion. I said, look, I've got none of it. So uh, I cut that cord. I'm, I'm learning it within my marriage. But uh, for investing, you don't want any. Yeah. So the main reason of why uh, renting or rent vesting is better than buying is I think of it like Monopoly. So I buy lots of those little green houses. Those green houses are Kuji Bondi million-dollar apartments. People land on them, they're, they're uh, affordable, so the rents are fairly high. So the rents in Sydney at the moment, 3 or 4%. Mm-hmm. If you then go and rent a 5 or $10 million home, how many people can afford it? Not many. And so what happens to the price? It goes down because there's not much demand. And then of the people that can afford that 5 or $10 million apartment, how many people want to rent... Not many, because they think poor people rent. It's a social social thing, a social stigma. And so the price comes down even further. And so what I worked out at uh, just at probably around my 30s or late 20s was whatever I could afford to buy, I could rent somewhere three times more expensive and still be better off. 
So I, I typically live in a five or ten million dollar home. My rent return that I pay is about one percent. Yeah. I'm then getting three or four percent in. My strata fees are a lot less because I'm in small buildings and I could be in very expensive uh, towns and stuff like that. All of my debt is tax deductible, whereas none of it would be on a on a family home. And then the counter argument to this is, oh, um, you it's not capital gains free. But if I never sell my investments, I never pay capital gains tax. I get all the profit out of my properties by refinancing, so I can use that equity without selling. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum, for instance, been in her home for the last 44 years. She's never had the benefit of capital gains, and she won't until she dies. I'd rather have the capital, um, sorry, the tax deductibility for the next 40 years. And then people say, oh, it's a hassle moving, you might get kicked out. We've been in the same place for seven or eight years. We used to move once a year before. And if you want it to work, it can work. Mm. So if we get kicked out, we go off on holiday. The removalists, they come in, they pack it, they move it, they unpack it. They're going to do it better than I can because they do it for a living. The cleaner comes in, they make the bed, put the teddies in there and all the rest of it. And every time we move, we move to a better place. So it's always a positive feeling. So you get a free holiday, a better house. What's the downside? So it's it's mind over matter with these kind of things. I might play this video later tonight to your to your partner, yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is, I think I was going to rent my, my partner out at ten grand a time just to persuade the other partners, and I think most people would say for ten grand it's probably still worth it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're left with all this additional cash. You can afford to buy or rent somewhere much nicer than you'd yeah. expect. So we had one with um, we had a New Year's Eve party uh, in Double Bay. We actually did a, a story for sixty minutes, which you can always Google and you can you can see the property. We had people jumping out of my bedroom window into the pool below, and then they're jumping from the pool into the harbour. And we had a surf rescue boat just tied up outside um, the house, so people could then go and uh, kind of cruise around on the harbour in the surf rescue boat. And my father-in-law at the time was saying, "Look, when are you going to buy my daughter a house?" And I said, well, for the same price we're paying this, this was a $6.7 million place in Sydney Harbour on Redleaf Pool. And I said, for the same money, I could get a really crappy three-bedroom semi in Ramwick with no view, no nothing. So what do you want your daughter to live in? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's just that mentality. We were paying two and a half grand a week, which most people say is a ridiculous amount of money. Mm. Um, But effectively on that property at the time, interest rates were around uh, 7%. They were paying five hundred grand in interest, and I'm renting it for one twenty-five a week. Oh, sorry, one hundred and twenty-five grand a year. So I'm paying a quarter of the price, let alone the land tax and the bills and whatever else and whatever other issues are coming yeah. with it. So a lot of this stuff comes to. Uh, so my skill base is basically numbers, and it's not high finance or anything. Basic numbers. Work out what a expensive property is going to cost you to buy or to rent, and then do it with your smaller properties and work out the numbers for yourself. You can see the simple calculations, a little Excel spreadsheet, and you're away. Yeah, so it's it's not it's not big numbers. It's just it's just looking at the numbers and taking the emotion outside of it. Excellent. I really really like that. Um, I've got a couple more questions here. This is this is an age old question. I'm sure that you've been asked a thousand times. Um, houses versus units. Yep. So it all depends where you're buying. Yeah. So like I mentioned before about the million dollars being the average property price in uh, in Sydney is I buy for the median price because it means the majority of the population can afford to buy it or to rent it, which means there's always a market. So in Sydney, the median price is roughly a million bucks, so I buy a unit. I wouldn't buy a house, I'd buy a unit because once you buy a house, it's a couple of million dollars, then the rent return isn't there, which is why it's better to rent best. Mm-hmm. If I was in Melbourne, it's a bit in between, so for their kind of 800 grand, it's more a townhouse or a villa. Anywhere else in Australia, I'd buy a house because that's what people live in. 
So like in, if you're in Brisbane and you're doing more affordable investing at five or 600 grand, then the average person there lives in a house and they're living two or three k's from the city or something like that mm-hmm. versus having a unit in the middle of the city. So it's not to say that there's there's a right or wrong, but if you follow that simple rule, it's hard to go too far wrong. So just to clarify, you you buy at the median house price or, or give or take say t- ten or twenty percent of the median price for the the area. And it's because the, the where it sits in the bell curve, it's where there's the most amount of affordability. So yeah. the highest. So it's the bell curve. It's a hundred percent of that. That's where the money is. Ten or twenty percent. It's going back to school mathematics. Was it was it pi? Yeah, something, Some, like that. something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's a pretty picture. I yeah. just, you know, I glazed over. But it is. But it's that bell curve. Yeah, that's where the ma- that's where the money is. Now, I want to get a little bit technical here because we've touched some fundamentals, which are really, really important, and these are age-old fundamentals which we've gone sure. through. But I want to just ask you about some of your techniques when you're buying property. I think that it's turned into a bit of a buyer's market. There's a lot of people that have come back in, and I, I cop some of these questions, so I'm lazily passing them on to you. That's okay. Um, I want to talk about your process when you are buying property. What what do you do? How do you go about it? Is it just realestate.com and domain? What kind of hints or techniques can you offer? Is it a spreadsheet? What, what do you do? How do you buy property? Sure. So we've bought the same thing for the last 20 or 30 years, and not a lot has really changed. So we're buying one, two, or three-bedroom units, small block of 12 with parking within 500 metres or 1,000 k's to the centre of either the, the suburb or the beach or, or whatever else. So you want to be walking distance and uh, have parking even with the Ubers these days. So, so that hasn't really changed at all. And ideally, so if you're in Sydney, you want to be north-facing, balcony, all that kind of stuff. Um, and typically, we're generally going into older buildings because we think if it's been standing there for 40 or 50 years, it's still standing there now. Double bricks. The only thing is, is around the beaches and the harbour, you get the concrete cancer. So you've just got to manage that. that that's part and parcel of it. So the way we do it, it's all about relationship with the agent. So in those good areas, everything goes to auction and there's always someone that can afford to to buy it and they're willing to pay more than me. So we only want to buy based on a bank valuation. So even though we've done it for 20 years, we know inside, we know the price of every one, two and three bedroom around because that's all we buy. But we still get an independent valuation. I think we're the only firm in the whole country that would do it to guarantee we're paying the right price and we're not emotional with it. Mm. Now, in a rising market, that makes our job 10 times as hard because say a property is going for a million bucks, it's very easy to show a client that doesn't know what they're doing, oh, this one sold for a million and 50 or 1.1, but you know in yourself that there were some advantages to it compared to the one, but the average customer wouldn't know. And we're saying... I want to guarantee every property that I buy for a client because I'm not touching every single deal. I know every deal was a great deal for the clients because we got an independent valuation, which we can't alter. And it costs uh, 660 bucks to get that. We then get a building report for 440 and a strata report for 250. So they're paying 1300 bucks on top of our 2% fee. But I say, if you're spending a million bucks, why wouldn't you spend 1300 bucks double checking that the professional you're using is doing the right thing by you? Absolutely. Because in the rising market before, a lot of the buyer's agents were buying in a block of 500. They're buying with no parking. They're buying on a main street. They're buying with small bedrooms that weren't double bedrooms. And they're not going to find out for years that they've overpaid or they bought the wrong thing. This is a big problem later. Yeah. So so that's the main thing. So we've got the due diligence that's black and white that we, we almost can't make a mistake, give or take. So that gets you about 95 or 99% correct, I think. 
So then the thing is, is we need, need to persuade agents to sell it to us before it goes to auction. Because if I'm doing that due diligence and say it's worth a million dollars on the bank fail, if then some young guy or some girl has got daddy that or granddaddy that wants to buy them a property and they want to bid up to 1.1, they'll bid up to 1.1. They don't care because they don't know intrinsically it's worth a million. And also if the guy before them or the girl has bid a million and 95, they say, well, I only paid five grand more than someone else. That's the market price. Well, no, it's not. If you've got two stupid people that have got no idea what they're buying, both bidding it up beyond whatever. Yeah, they're going up in thousand or five hundred dollar uh, increments for twenty increments. But we, we've had deals where the agents begged us to buy us a property for a million bucks before, and we say there's no way we're touching it. We just don't like it for any price. We wouldn't buy it. And then he's got two muppets that he suddenly sold it for one point one because he's got two people that have got emotionally involved that have seen it for the smelling of the candles and the bread and all that kind of stuff. And that's what agents are paid for. They're professional sellers to get the best price for the vendor. So the agent's done the right thing. Mm. But you've just got two uneducated people that have made a mistake. Okay. So just to summarize, you you go out, do your due, due diligence, which is the, the valuer, um, strata report, building report. Yeah. And you try and purchase it off market with the or, agent. Or in the, or in the first few days of the campaign. Because say you've got a property, say that's worth a million bucks, and you try and offer them even a million bucks the day before they put it on the market, they want to see that, oh, is there someone stupid that's going to pay over the odds? Mm-hmm. So sometimes we want to, them to put it on the market to show that on day one no one has made in a stupid offer, and then we're trying to say to them, look, you've already found your dream home, you want to move on, whatever else, you need a million bucks to guarantee that you can go and do that, here's a million bucks now. Now you could go to auction and you might get a million and fifty, you might got 1.1, but you might get 995. And if if that happens, you're going to lose your dream home. You bought your home for 250 anyway, you've made 750. Whether you make 750 or 800, does it really matter? Mm. Now in a booming market, we're trying to get one in 20. In a market like this, we're getting maybe one out of two. So it depends on the market. Okay, so that's interesting then, because if you're... Does it become an expensive exercise when you're when you're shopping and you're having to do the due diligence every single time? So we've got the relationship with the agents that, say if you're Joe Public, he wants to get you in, he wants to get you committed, he'll get you paying for those reports. Not that most people would do the reports anyway. They might do a Strider report and building and that's it. Mm. With us, because they know it's multiple deals and we might have done 50 or 100 with McGrath or something like that, we've got an existing relationship they're not going to get us to do it just to get an extra person because they know we're not going to be at auction. And so they're not going to burn that relationship. Or if they are, they're pretty stupid because they're then missing out on 10 or 15 future deals. And so it's really up to our, us and our question in our relationship to say, look, if you know your vendor's going to go to auction and they want a 1.1, let's not waste anyone's time because you know we're not going to bid that. So let's just move on. But if they've got someone that they can pitch to them to say, look, we do think you might get 1.1 at auction, but if you want the guarantee, and some people want it. And so the classic thing is is selling a second-hand car. Everyone knows you don't get the best price when you trade it in with the main dealer. But why does everyone do it? They just don't want the grief. Convenience. Just, it's a bird in the hand. Just get it done, yeah, exactly. And when you're dealing with a million bucks, that's someone's retirement, someone's lifeline. It's the same thing. And we're not trying to steal from them. We're happy paying fair price. I've got no issues with paying fair price for a good property but not paying a premium. And so we say, here's a million bucks, done and dusted. So how do you handle agents? How do you talk to them? What kind of 
questions are you asking them? What's the kind of relationship that you're trying to have if, if you're a purchaser and you, you know, you're so for most people it'll cost them about ten kilos, and that's in lunches, dinners, drinks, over the years. We're just spending time with them. We're getting friends with them. A lot of it's one of my colleagues that does the main buying. He's been in the eastern suburbs since he was zero. And so it's long, long, decade-long, multiple-decade relationships. And so this is the thing. is Can Joe Public do it themselves? Yes, they can, but you're not going to build that relationship overnight, and it takes time. So a lot of people would say, so as a buyer's agent, we charge 2%, so say 20 grand on a million-dollar property. Most people say, no, nah, parents' mentality, I'll save that. I could do it myself. Sure, but you might pay a million and fifty or 1.1, and then you paid two to five times the, the fee. And so can you do that? If you're only buying a property every three or five years, it's not worth you investing that amount of time for that relationship mm. when someone else has already got that relationship because it will take you years and years to develop it and by then the market's moved anyway. So yeah, Joe Public can do it, but it's very, very hard. Just like if we went to school together, we've been mates for 20 or 30 years versus someone else walks in to try and do a deal with you, whether you're buying or selling, you're always going to do a different deal with someone that you've known for 20 or 30 years. Okay. Or is doing 50 deals a year with you. So, and, and let me ask this maybe another way. For, for Joe, average person, me, <laughs> that's out there just hunting and having a chat to an agent, is there, an, or if you're looking in another market, what kind of questions would you want to be asking an agent? Or what, what kind of probing things are you trying to get out of the, the agent that helps you with your buying decision or... To make it advantageous for you to try and offer the right value or, you know. Yeah. So one of the biggest things is, first of all, you need to know what the property is worth. So there's no point having the best relationship. If you don't know what the property is worth, even a good agent, even if he's a mate, could take you for a ride anyway. And I'm not saying, trying to say bad of the agents, but it's like second-hand car salespeople as well. Their, their job is to sell it for the highest price. And if you've got no middle. idea, they'll, they'll go and do it. So you need to know the property price. Um, it's really then asking, I mean, I guess when we do it now, because we've got the relationship, we just have a quiet word away from the open home to say, look, mate, what's the bottom deal? You're quoting a million. If I came to you with a million dollars now, would you take it? And I said, no, of course not. You know how the game is played. And so we're saying, well, the chances are it's 10 or 20% beyond that in a, a top market. So if I came to you with 1.1 today, would you do the deal? Okay, well, where are the vendors? When are they going to physically sign? And you keep drilling them, almost asking them the same question. And so if they say, yeah, 1.1 will take it. Well, okay, if I come to your office at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for 1.1, at what time will you get the vendors to sign? Where are they physically? Where do you have to go? Will they come to you? Will they be at the office at the same time? So you really want to question it. And normally when you question it a few times, they'll say, oh, well, look, saying that, I haven't actually had the conversation with them and, look, I'm, I'm not too sure, or actually they're overseas well, how can you tell me that they'll take 1.1 if they're overseas and they can't sign for another week? Because you're just going to shop it around and take it to other people. Mm. So it's just drilling and asking the same question in lots of different ways to see if you get the same answer to see if there's a hole in their thing. So you're, you're pressing the agent. So you've got to go in focus, knowing what, you're, what value you're willing to pay. And, 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 and more what it's worth, really. And push to get that price. You're trying to press the agent to make sure yeah. they have the conversation to to accelerate the deal in favour of you rather yeah. than sitting, hanging out, deliberating, shopping the deal. Yeah, because if they're going to shop the deal, 
a good agent with us now, they'll just say, look, it's not worth your time. I've got 15 contracts out. There's so much demand. There's no way I can persuade the owner to take your deal because they're going to say, what about the other 15? I'm going to have to go and ring them. And they've got legal obligations at times as well. And so we're just kind of pushing and to really just find out, have they got the power to make that decision? Will the deal actually get through and how quickly it will happen? Otherwise, we just won't invest in those reports. So if the agent's kind of wishy-washy and he won't give us an exact number, we'll say, look, we're paying 1300 bucks for reports. We can't do that with a price guide over a million bucks. Because if our client's got a set price range, or if we think the property's only worth a certain amount, then we're not going to go ahead. And so a lot of the time the agents are saying, well, what's your budget? And a lot of our clients haven't got a budget. Like some have bought tens and tens of millions of dollars worth of property. So it's got nothing to do with how much money our clients got. We're only going to pay what the valuation says. And if they say, come on, mate, you won't get paid, just get the deal done. No, because we've got an honest loyalty to our clients that we know if we look after them and they pay valuation price, next year the market moves they can pull equity out and they keep repeating. So I think our average client's got four properties or something. Mm. And so we want that repeat business, but in some salespeople's minds, they just want to do they just want to do deals and they can't understand why we wouldn't do a deal at another 50 grand if our client's wealthy enough. And we're saying, well, no, if the property's not worth it, we're not going to pay for it. I'm not doing my job right. It's, it's unethical. And I want to which, sleep. <laughs> which sounds a stupid thing. Yeah. But that's what we do. And that's why I sleep, because I know every single property, and we've bought hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, every single one was done on evaluation. And um, first and foremost, I want to say thank you very much for your time. We've gone a little over, and I'm really appreciating all the, the fundamentals that you've touched on and being so open and candid with your your, pleasure. your answers. Um, if you're prepared to talk about it, are you happy to chat about some of the things you're working on today or what? You know, just a little bit of a reach out to our audience and viewers and what, what they're doing and what they can see and how yeah, they can yeah, reach sure. out to you. Um, so, look, I guess a really good one for education, which is free, um, is I wrote a book in 2008 called The Effortless Empire. And the whole idea is how to build a property portfolio and sit on the beach and take it easy and not have to work for a living. Yep. And literally, we, we look at it every couple of years because we produce like five or 10,000 a year. And we haven't changed a word in, what's that now, 11 years. The only thing we changed is when I wrote it in 2008, the average property price was uh, 500 grand. Rewrote it in uh, 2000 and I think 15, seven years later, and it was a million bucks. So that's that's the only thing we changed. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So they can uh, they, they can download that for free at yourempire.com.au, either in uh, um, PDF or in um, uh, soft copy, so and listen to it, or just buy it for, uh, I think, a uh, price for stamp will send you one. But a lot of what I'm doing, so 95% of my strategy hasn't changed over the years. It's exactly the same. It's just buy and hold, try and refinance every year or every two years, pull the equity out and keep repeating. Mm-hmm. And that's all I do. Um, I mentioned just before the interview, we're doing some other things now. So we're doing a few courses to teach people. So not everyone can afford the buyer's agents thing. So we're doing some courses to teach people how to do it. But also the latest thing we've done is actually set up a syndicate. So I, I still learn myself. I go out learning and I was um, learning from a developer a couple of years ago. And so we actually raise some money with within our client base to then go and invest in property options. And this is a different league of money. No, so we're, different. We're, we're buying like million dollar properties. We might buy a block for 10 or 15 million. But what we're doing now is effectively a lot of the time you can control these properties for a fraction of the price, get the DA or the development application, get the upswing in the property value without paying a dollar of, uh, of the actual property price and without a dollar of debt. So we're going to some properties that there might be a block of 50 units. We know we can turn it into 500 units. Mm -hmm. 
and 500 units at say 800 grand each, that's $400 million worth of property. Mm -hmm. And we can maybe secure that with an option fee of five grand a unit, so 250 grand. We might then spend a million or a million and a half on the DA. So sure, we're still investing like one and a half, two million, but this is across multiple people. So the actual investment each isn't that much. But if you can suddenly get an upswing from 50 units going up to four or 500, the upswing is unbelievable. This is a very lucrative part of the market. It's an advanced strategy. You definitely will be working with professionals. It's not something you just yeah. walk in uh, willy-nilly um, because being able to control the property and have time to engineer value through paperwork. And, and be up to reliant on the government and stuff like that. So a lot of the clients that got into this, they're only investing 50 grand each. Mm -hmm. And we said, look, really, you've got to have made a million dollars with us before. Is that a sophisticated investor? Or? So we didn't say they had to be sophisticated, but that's more the kind of person we're after. So some of them wanted their kids to come in because they had 50 grand deposit. And then they said, look, 50 grand's not enough to do anything, which I agreed. But I'm saying, if we've made you a million or you've got a few million dollars worth of property, you can afford to lose 50. Yeah. If a kid has only got 50, he can't start again. So no kids. Yeah. Um, and it really was the thought is, just like you might put five, 10 grand investments into some dot-coms and you might get one in five or one in 10, this was a similar thing. Obviously, it's more sophisticated. It's very much a, a definite plan. Um, the spreadsheets we deal with are, are just mega, like there's so much detail in there. So we're very much making a calculated decision, but overnight, then the government could go and change the rules and then suddenly all your money's down the pan. Mm -hmm. So uh, definitely a different kind of strategy, but again, my strategy hasn't changed. 95% of your money in safe blue chip, safe assets and cash. And um, yeah, the rest of it have a bit of a play. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you can double down and spend a little of your profits and some yeah. things that will rock it off into the stratosphere. But um, you've definitely got to write off the money. So we said to all our clients, write the money off, forget about it. And if I ring you in three or four years' time and I've got some cash, then be happy. And then we'll go again. Yeah. Chris, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Catch you later.